Greetings to you in the sanctuary and greetings to you at home. If you're a visitor, we want to say a special welcome. We're thankful that you're here. And COVID precautions notwithstanding, it's a strange season, but it is that time again where Margaret would tell us to lift up our head uh, and greet the visitors in our midst. Uh, so be on alert, congregation, for new folks among us. This morning, we're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Our text is on page 1006, if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles. Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at Jesus' feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Jesus went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After Jesus put them all out, he took the child's father and mother 
and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a story about desperate people. Have you heard a story lately about someone who has run out of options? Do you know someone who's on the edge of despair? Maybe it's you. When have you been desperate? And what did you do when you were? Desperate people flock to Jesus. When he got out of the boat, they were waiting for him. The first person we meet is a desperate parent. Mark introduces him as a synagogue leader or the ruler of the synagogue. This is a reminder to us that we have returned from Gentile territory to a predominantly Jewish region, and here, this man is someone. The ruler of a synagogue was not a seminarian. We shouldn't lump him in with the scribes and the Pharisees. The position, it seems, was some combination of lay religious leader and custodian. He had the keys to the building and the oversight of weekly services. And he wastes no time. He goes straight to Jesus and announces his request. My daughter is at the point of death, but there is one more chance, Jesus. If you touch her, she will live. I know that some of you have been here. You've been in the situation of pleading with Jesus for the life of your child. And we, this congregation, have been the crowd alongside you, the ones who go with you to entreat the Lord, who are in the background as the story unfolds. Jesus hears this parent's request. He hears and he responds. He goes with the desperate father to the bedside of his child, and the crowd goes with him. This is a crisis moment. If this story were unfolding this morning outside our doors, we would hear the sirens blazing of an ambulance. If you were in a hospital, you would hear the code alert sound. This is a crisis moment, but the crisis is interrupted. It's interrupted for, well, we don't even know what to call this person. She doesn't have a title. She doesn't even have a name. But like Jairus, she comes to Jesus, desperate. The scholarly term for this kind of interruption in a story is a heterodiegetic analepsis. But other scholars call this a sandwich, a Markin sandwich. That's what we'll go with. 
as you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll notice this, this happening throughout the stories. You'll see one story wedged in the middle of another story, and the two stories interpret one another. So how does this interruption change the flavor of the original story? If we pulled out the middle of this sandwich, what would we miss? What would we miss if we did not encounter this nameless woman along the way? Mark's description of the woman suggests that she suffers from an unresolved menstrual condition. Perhaps she had children, but she won't have any more. She once had money, but after a decade or more of being poked and prodded by doctors and shelling out for medical bills, well, she's sick and poor. And her condition keeps her on the margins. Remember that at the center of Israel's life was the presence of the living God. God is so intensely alive. What did he tell Moses that his name was? His name was, I am that I am. I will be that I will be. Even on the best of days, humans are simply too weak to handle the intense life of the living God. But humans who enter God's presence bearing the signs of their own mortality, like blood, discharge, death, well, they actually put themselves in danger. So, in Leviticus and other places, we learn about this process by which persons might be separated for a time, temporarily quarantined, in order to return to the fellowship of the people in the presence of God. But for this woman, what was supposed to be temporary went on and on. The blood kept flowing. The quarantine never ended. If Jairus is the man with the keys to the synagogue, this is the woman who never darkened the door. But she didn't have to. She heard about Jesus. And whatever she had heard, she knew that she didn't have to meet him in church. She didn't have to get a private appointment. It would be enough just to reach out and grab at him, to touch his cloak. And she did. And it worked. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. This could easily have been the end of the interlude. After all, remember... The sirens are still blaring. The code is sounding. Jairus is standing there. And Jesus is rushing, or supposed to be rushing, to his daughter's bedside. But again, the crisis is interrupted. Jesus stops to find out, who touched me? His disciples ridicule the question. I can only imagine the pained and fearful expression on Jairus' face as Jesus delays again. But Jesus persists, scanning the crowd. Who touched me? And so now the person who approached Jesus from behind, who seemed to want to remain in the shadows, is called out in front of everyone to tell her story. 
Jesus prolongs this already too long interruption to make this woman an example for the crowd, for the disciples, even for the ruler of the synagogue. It's while Jesus is still speaking to her that messengers come to tell him, Jairus, it's too late. But Jesus, some texts say overhear him, but you could also say ignores them. Jesus ignores them and looks at Jairus and says, don't be afraid, believe. What does it mean to believe when you are desperate? To believe in the face of death. What kind of faith does Jesus commend in this woman and call forth from Jairus and from us? Well, consider the woman. Many in the crowd must have brushed past Jesus or bumped up against him, but to our knowledge, nothing happened to them. But the woman who only could have known so much about who Jesus was grabs onto Jesus with expectation. She acts on the assumption that something is at work in Jesus that outmatches her past disappointments and is more powerful than her present pain. Something more is going on in her at that moment than the person who bumps up against Jesus in the crowd. We'll see in our text next week that in Nazareth, where there was an outright rejection of Jesus, he performs fewer miracles. It's complicated, isn't it? By no means does every healing in the gospel begin with a preface, a clarity of conviction, like this woman expresses. In so many cases, people who have no voice of their own, perhaps no faith of their own, are brought to Jesus by others. Peter tells Jesus about his mother-in-law. The friends lower the paralytic through the roof. Jairus pleads on behalf of his daughter. We want to figure out the formula. We both do and don't want to believe that the ones who are healed, the ones whose loved ones pull through, are those who reach some magical threshold of faith. People recount the stories with bewilderment. Did you hear what happened? And they're a person of such strong faith. They hang their head as if to say, God really owed it to them. We want to believe maybe we can force God's hand with the threshold of faith, the strength of our intercession. But then we're haunted by thoughts like, why did I doubt? Or if only my faith had been stronger. But consider Jairus. When the messengers came to deliver the news and dismiss Jesus, what did Jairus say? Did he insist, no, Jesus, we will keep going? Did he say, yeah, go on home? The fact is, we don't know. And it doesn't seem to matter. Jairus doesn't answer and Jesus doesn't wait. 
Jesus doesn't wait for some heroic display of unflagging faith in order to continue. Jairus doesn't reach that magical threshold that will force Jesus' hand to heal her. Jesus goes on ahead of Jairus, calling for faith as he follows. This is an amazing story. It's an amazing story in part because after all this grief, what Peter and James and John and Jairus and the mother see behind closed doors, hidden from everyone else, is a kind of, well, dramatic preview. In Jesus, the intensely alive God came into this world and lived among us. In Jesus, a life that was stronger than death inhabited our frail human form and healed us. Because of Jesus, we can imagine a day when we will no longer be quarantined by sin or death, but we can actually hope for fellowship with God and one another that one day will not be interrupted. This power of God's life, present in Christ, flares out when he encounters sickness and death. This power of God in Christ is what lanced the womb of the woman. It's what raised the girl. But that is just a preview. The power is seen in full when Jesus himself goes to the grave. And then when we see that the grave can't hold him. One of our Black Knoll members, who's a doctor, has remarked that during his practice, he observed that it was Christians who often had the hardest time accepting a fatal diagnosis, who were not receptive to discussing code status even in hopeless situations. I've seen some of this myself, as some of you have shared with me in the context of difficult medical decisions you have to make for yourself or a loved one, the pressures you feel from other Christians. What does it mean to believe when you are desperate, to have faith in the face of death? It's tempting to read that Jairus, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter and to conclude that faith is to deny that death is a possibility, to turn away from the grave. This congregation has some incredible stories. We have stories of people brought back from the brink of death, of children that we had said goodbye to who are still with us. But during my years here, I've also seen you bury parents after long, hard seasons of care, Spouses whom you were not ready to part with, and children whose time was too short. You've taught me that faith in the face of death means trusting that Jesus goes with you to the bedside, to the graveside, and even to the grave. Faith in him means wanting that everlasting, uninterrupted life But, in the words of a second-century Christian bishop, 
who tended the sick during the plagues. It's also learning, learning painstakingly not to fear death, wanting that everlasting, uninterrupted life, but learning ever so painfully not to fear death. Where are you in the story today? Coming directly at Jesus with an urgent need? Reaching around from behind? Staying in the shadows? Bumping up against him in the crowd? Sending Jesus away? Resolved to bother him no more? Where are we together? And how would our story be different if we knew that in the end, Jesus will take us, each one, by the hand and say, son, daughter, rise. Let's pray together. Minister to us, Holy Spirit. This is a hopeful and hard word. Meet us where we are desperate. Amaze us with your healing power. And give us courage and faith. We ask in the name of the only one whose life was stronger than death. Jesus. Amen.